Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Kim is away this week. We're going to miss her during this conversation, but we'll look forward to seeing her back next week. The response to our announcement that there will be a Hashtag Sisters in Law live tour has been amazing. We're really looking forward to doing some live shows, and we're grateful to have heard from so many of you about where you think we should hold them. So thank you and stay tuned. And also this week, we'll be picking three winners from among those who had suggestions for us, and each of those winners will be getting some swag. So on with the show. Today, we have a lot to talk with you about. First up, of course, the January 6th committee hearings and our assessment of how the committee is doing. We'll also be discussing Steve Bannon's unsuccessful effort to get DOJ's prosecution dismissed, while Peter Navarro, who is also facing obstruction of Congress charges, finally gets a lawyer. And the upcoming Title IX anniversary and school dress codes that discriminate against girls. It's a big week, and as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get started, I have a question for y'all. You know, I'm not very hip. I have children who try to keep my taste in music up to date, so I know who Lizzo is. I really like her music when I listen to it. And Barb, I understand this week that she had to change lyrics in one of her songs after being told that using the word spaz was insensitive to disabled people. Do you have a take on what's going on here? I do. And, you know, Joyce, I love Lizzo. Lizzo and is, is originally from Detroit. She grew up in Texas, but we claim her as our own. She is an accomplished flute player, classically trained, but is also, you know, um, it very much embraces body image um, and expressing, you know, who, who you are and not being ashamed of those kinds of things. And so when a fan pointed out that in a new song that she has, um, uses the word spaz, as you just pointed out, uh, is ableist, that it refers to spastic paralysis, which is what we now refer to as cerebral palsy. And the fan said, you know, you are, um, you, you, you are sort of saying things harmful to disabled people. She had no idea, and I didn't either. And she said, thank you for pointing it out, and she changed the lyric. So now it's just, I don't know, something like, I feel bad or something like that. Instead Wait a of, second. Of Barbara, you didn't know that spaz was a terrible thing to say? No, absolutely not. Nor did Lizzo. Oh, my god. Absolutely gosh. not. I, perhaps it is my uh, hard scrabble, uh, street tough upbringing. But um, <laughs> no, it, no it, it, spaz, you know, to me just meant, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what it meant, but I had no idea that it, it was. It could uh, be an derogatory. age differential because yeah. that was something that was said. I happen to have a cousin who has had cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, when I was a child, something that if I had ever said that, I would have been punished extremely severely. My mother would not ever have permitted me to say that. And I, it, it's like. I mean, there are other words that I won't say on air, even though I've said the seven deadly words you can't say on television. Um, <laughs> beep, beep. Beep, 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 <laughs> yes. Um, but there are a lot of words that are just so thoughtless mm-hmm. and uh, things that, you know, we may not be so sensitive to, but that have been hurtful to other people. And I'm very proud that Lizzo changed the words. That's the right approach. Don't get defensive. Change it. Yeah. It is, you I know, love Jill- how gracious she was. She really models the behavior that I want to use because I think the point that you're making, Jill, is a really good one. 
you don't know if you don't know, right? It's possible to be insensitive without intending it. And if you can use that as, as a minute to change and grow and do better the next time and be more inclusive, we're all better off. So I, I am all for the Lizzo approach. Yeah, same. And I think, you know, language is constantly evolving. Uh, Jill, I know you are often fo- focus us on, you know, say this, not that. Language evolves and you need to keep up. And I think we need to be forgiving of people who are not aware of these things. Lizzo wasn't, I wasn't. Um, but it's it's a, a growth opportunity. And to admit that, well, wow, thank you for teaching me this thing and I'm going to stop using it. I remember when we were U.S. Attorney's Choice, it was very common to use the word alien, which is the word used in the statute for people who are uh, immigrants from another country. Um, but we've talked about this before. The word alien, you know, suggests, I mean, such otherness. Such a bad word. Yeah, yeah, otherness in such a way, right? It's, it's so, so demonizing. If you, I've mentioned this before too, I think. If you type into your iPhone uh, in the emojis, alien, what shows up is like, you know, someone from Mars, like a, you right. know, a, little, a little green man. And so, you know, we began using the language of undocumented individuals, uh, even though the statute says alien. And so I think we just have to be open to evolving language. And I also think, Jill, it's so interesting that you as, I don't mean to call you out on this, but as the older among us, are the one who was aware of this issue. Because I, as a younger person, I always assumed that it was older people who were sort of stuck in the old ways who would use poor language. And it's just the opposite. I find that the older I get, the more appreciative I am that language evolves. And I've seen it change. In my lifetime, we've gone from the words Negro to color to black to African-American to people of color, right? And I appreciate that it changes and I need to keep up. And I think when you're a younger person, you feel like this is the way it's always been all my life and the way it'll always be. So um, I'm all for the wisdom. My whole life spaz was not a permitted word, Mm -hmm. but I did go through the change. You know, I took a year off law school. uh, I took a leave of absence for one year. and I did not know this. Oh, you didn't? Okay, Mm -hmm. well, after my... After my first year, I got married and I had to raise money to pay tuition. And so I worked for a year also because I hated my first year of law school because I wanted to be a journalist, not a lawyer. And I decided I was going to try my hand at journalism because it was had to be easier than going to law school to be a journalist. And I got a great job, but that's a whole other story in which I ended up working for the CIA, not knowing that I was working for the CIA. But Okay, as, we need this whole story at a later date. I'm at just a later, later, later time. <laughs> but in the year that I was gone, James Meredith became a classmate of mine in my new class. And Black is Beautiful. Became, Wait, James Meredith, the guy who was the first person admitted yes. to the University of Mississippi? Yes, ma'am. At James Chill. Meredith. Yes, Chill, at you, James you, Meredith. You know everybody. Yes, and, and Black is Beautiful started. And there was a Black separatist movement so that friends of mine from the class, the first my first year basically weren't my friends anymore. And because the the black students in this Black is Beautiful movement had lunch together by themselves and they didn't welcome the rest of us. And I, I remember talking to my favorite professor, Maurice Rosenberg, who I was working for at the time on the civil procedure book. Uh, knowing how little I know about civil procedure, you might be surprised to know that part. Um, And he said, you know, the pendulum swings too far and then it'll swing back to the middle. And there will come a time when you will appreciate Black is Beautiful, which I certainly do now, but I felt excluded by it. And of course, that's probably a good lesson because I'm sure that people of color have felt excluded for much of their lives. And so it's a good lesson to get that sensitivity. So Jill, there's another um, 
interesting anniversary taking place this week. I know we're going to talk during the show about the anniversary of Title IX, but there is one other anniversary. Do you want to tell us about that? I do. It's today that we are recording this is June 17th, which is the 50th anniversary of the burglars at the DNC in the Watergate complex getting caught. It was two in the morning, so it was early, early. It was a Saturday, a Saturday morning. And that was the start of the end of Richard Nixon as president. It was the start of the Watergate scandal. It was the start of every scandal being called gate, Trump gate, (laughs) Russia gate, uh, Billy gate, Iran gate. And it's going to be a big event tonight. Uh, The Senate staff, Um, because I don't think any of the senators who were on the committee uh, for the hearings then are still alive. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But um, anyway, the Senate staff has put together a reunion that is tonight in the very room where John Dean testified, where the Watergate hearings were. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing people I haven't seen in 50 years. And uh, although my, my Watergate prosecution force friends, of course, We've had our own reunions, but we celebrate on the Saturday Night Massacre, which we survived. And so it'll be fun. There's going to be some panels, which I tried to talk the organizers out of because I think everybody just wants to talk and mingle and say hello. And they've invited C-SPAN to film, and I'm moderating a panel with Richard Benvenista, who was my trial partner during Watergate, Jim Hamilton, who was the deputy to Dash on the Senate committee, the consul to the Senate Irvin committee, um, and um, Francis O'Brien, who worked for Rodino, the impeachment committee, had to drop out because he just tested positive for COVID. And mm-hmm. Liz Holtzman missed her plane, so she dropped out. She was the youngest member of the Judiciary Committee. And uh, Congresswoman Deborah Ross is going to um, appear she was someone who proposed the first articles of impeachment against Donald Trump. So we'll talk to her about that and how it compares to the impeachment of Richard Nixon. But I personally think everybody in the room is going to be moving out of the room to continue talking and that only the C-SPAN audience will ever hear what we have to say. But (laughs) I hope I'm wrong. It's an amazing group of people. It will be a a lot of fun. And it's put me back in touch with uh, you guys are too young to remember Connie Chung, maybe, um, who was CBS. I am not. I grew up with Connie Chung. You I grew was in up? Los Angeles. Yeah, she was really? in my house every night. You're kidding me. I mean, in the sense that she was the person we li- we got on. Oh, she, she was on TV in your house. Yeah, oh, in so, L.A. Yeah, so I've been corresponding with her. Um, and it's just, you know, and Leslie Stahl covered Watergate, of course. And so it's going to be a lot of fun to see all these people. And George Frampton, uh, George and Richard were in the CNN special. Uh, it's going to be great. So I'm, I'm all excited and um, looking forward to getting there. Well, I can't wait to watch. Listen, before we start the show, I just need to say one thank you to our listeners. Last night, there was a shooting in Birmingham at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Vestavia, which is, you know, maybe 10 minutes from my house across the street from Chabad, where much of the Jewish community um, is focused. And so many of our listeners took time to email or text or tweet at me um, to ask how we were doing. I wanted to thank you. 
I note that today we're hearing reports out of D.C. that the consensus in the Senate may be uh, falling apart over some of the details. So I'd encourage everybody who cares about these issues to continue to write to your senators and let them know that you are watching and that we have got to make change on this issue. Last week, our entire show was about the January 6th hearings, the opening night on Thursday, June 9th, and the challenges and the future and what we expected to hear. Since then, we have had a hearing about the big lie on Monday, a postponed hearing about the abuse of the Department of Justice on Wednesday, and a very powerful hearing yesterday, Thursday, about the pressure on and the threat to Vice President Pence, and the crazy concept behind the Eastman memo and new information about Ginny Thomas's broader role in the coup attempt. So let's take a deep breath and review this week's hearings. Barb, give us a quick summary of what you learned in the hearing about the big lie. Yeah, this was on Monday, and um, I, I thought it was a really powerful hearing. You know, I think for most of us who have followed these hearings closely, we sort of expected to be able to say, well, I kind of knew all this stuff, but um, uh, you know, nothing new. It really was far more extensive, I think, than had been previously reported and really quite devastating for Trump. You know, the big question is whether he knew that he really lost the election. Was it all, you know, just a good faith argument or was it in fact a lie? And we heard from some real insiders. There was a guy named Bill Stepien who was his uh, campaign manager who said, you know, we were telling him there was just no merit to any of these fraud claims. Uh, we referred to ourselves as Team Normal and the rest was on Team Rudy. There was no fraud. William Barr testified, you know, they used a, um, a, a video transcript of his testimony uh, to show some of his testimony. And he said that the theories that Trump supported were, he used the words idiotic, amateurish, and detached from reality, and that he told Trump this on several occasions. It wasn't just one time. The former U.S. attorney from Atlanta testified that there was no fraud there involving, you know, there's this whole claim about suitcase full, suitcases full of ballots at the State Farm Arena, that nothing there was true. And so that, to me, was really powerful toward going toward that mental state that Donald Trump knew that this claim was all fraudulent. And then the other new thing that, to me, was really interesting was when uh, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren said, turns out the big lie was also the big ripoff that Donald Trump fundraised, fundraised and, and uh, $250 million soliciting funds for something he called the Election Defense Fund, a fund that does not exist, and that he spent some of the money on things other than what he solicited for. So it's like fraud upon fraud. There's two levels of potential wire fraud here, I think. One is that he used the big lie to cause money people to give him money, right? So that's a false pretense in the first place. But then once he got the money, they spent it on things other than what they said it was for. According to Congresswoman Lofgren, they gave some of it to a, a, a PAC controlled by Mark Meadows and some of it to the Trump hotels. So that's a pretty interesting development that I think the Justice Department will be really interested in looking into. So Monday was a really powerful day, I thought. I agree with you completely. And Joyce, talk about the hearing that involved everything to do with uh, the vice president. Yeah, so the Pence World Day was interesting 
Barb, I, I was fascinated that you said that you didn't think that we would be learning new information because I thought that too. I thought yeah. we had been paying attention. We knew what was going on. It would be interesting to see it all laid out, but nothing new. That was not the case um, on Pence World Day either. And frankly, there was so much information that came at us so quickly that if you're like me, you are feeling a little bit overwhelmed. I had um, I, I grabbed a couple of three ring binders just to take handwritten notes during the hearings. And I just wrote compulsively. I literally have a full binder that I'm still <laughs> working back through to find the places that I asterisk for the most important parts. But I do have a few observations about the Pence Day um, that I want to um, share with the group. Um, the first one is that, you know, Pence was Trump's mark, right? He was the mark. When all of Trump's other schemes to hold on to the presidency after losing the election fell away, all that they left with was this crazy, whatever you want to call it, fake slates of electors, Green Bay sweep, this scam to claim that the 12th Amendment meant something that it didn't say, and uh, that the Electoral College Act had provisions that it didn't have, and that Pence could throw the election to Trump. So Pence was the mark. Trump needed Pence to get on board. And to Pence's credit, he never did. It, it's worth saying just this about um, the, the morning testimony from Judge Ludig, which I know was a little bit slowly paced for some people. Uh, a, <laughs> That's a an understatement. <laughs> I'm just going to say, you guys, I'm so nerdy that I was absolutely fascinated. I thought he, he put his thoughts together. He, he was so careful to, in each sentence, to make sure that anything that could have been, you know, an outlier that he accounted for it. Um, so I, I wanted to listen his- to him, Joyce. On, I got to interrupt you for, on two X. I could he, maybe even three X. Oh, that's smart. That. That's actually pretty smart. Uh, I listen to most things on two so X. But, but so let me just. Ex- I, I thought it actually helped people to understand that he went slowly, so that for us too. who understand it, Oof. who have an exposure to the law. Maybe it was a little slow, but Oof. for people who are trying to understand each of the words and concepts, I, I applaud him. Well, here's the takeaway. If you think that there was some colorable argument that John Eastman was making or some colorable position that Trump had that Pence could, could toss the election by interfering with the certification process, the answer to that is, well, you know, that would mean that Al Gore could have done that when he lost the election, or that would mean that Kamala Harris could do it in 2024. And we know that not even John Eastman thought that because when Pence's counsel, Greg Jacob, said that to him, Eastman says, no, Gore could not have done this and Kamala cannot do this, but we should do this. And I think what he specifically said was, you should tell Mike Pence to do this. So look, this is just uh, a bunch of trickery, a bunch of fakery, a bunch of criminality, and it gets exposed for what it is at that basic legal level. I had a regret about the Pence World hearing, and that was that we didn't hear from Mike Pence himself. I think that that's shameful. He was off campaigning in Cincinnati, Ohio. He's still trying to walk a fine line where he avoids uh, pissing off the Trump people too much. And I think that what we need in this country is people who are willing to stand up and do the right thing, are willing to put country ahead of party, and are willing to put country ahead of their own personal ambition. 
And as much as I'm grateful to Mike Pence for what he did on January 6th, I think he had more work to do on behalf of this country um, and, and that he's not doing it. And I hope he'll come around. I thought one of the most interesting parts of Pence Day was the very end when Representative Thompson says, and by the way, if you're one of those people who still hasn't spoken to us, if you're on the, the fence, here's our website and all these people are talking. And, you know, he's sort of saying you can get on the bus or you can be under the bus. Um, I'll be interested to see if anyone from Mike Pence on down decides that it's time to come in and talk. Just a couple more quick things. On the evidence, which clearly the committee is focused on Trump, right? They're being forced to talk about Jenny Thomas a little bit right now. They want to talk about Donald Trump and his responsibility for the big lie on January 6th. And they did something fabulous with the evidence when it came to Mike Pence. They juxtaposed Trump's tweets on a timeline, followed by videotape of what was actually happening in the crowd, in the mob, a few minutes later, after they'd had time to absorb those tweets and word of them began to spread. And so you saw the crowd get increasingly more violent. Trump starts out on the ellipse, you know, if Mike Pence doesn't do the right thing, he's not going to be my friend anymore. Ultimately, we see the crowd explode into chants of hang Mike Pence, and they have in fact built a gallows outside of the Capitol. And then we have this final tweet that happens, I think at 2.24. It's after Trump has been told that the Capitol has been breached, and he is still putting that big target on Mike Pence's back, even when he knows he's at risk inside of the Capitol. So it's a pretty clear portrait of what Trump intended and, and something that I have struggled with. And Barb, I know you've thought about this too. Jill, I don't know that you and I have talked about this is that it seemed that Trump, if anything, would be charged with um, interference with Congress or conspiracy to defraud the United States. I'm not so sure that we don't see the bare bones of evidence of seditious conspiracy here. I, I don't think it's all there. I think you would have to prove, of course, the agreement and the participants. But here, the, the difference with seditious conspiracy is that one of its elements is the use of force. And here we have Trump targeting Pence, knowingly continuing to do it when there's great danger. And then the evidence I expect we'll hear from the committee in one of the next few hearings for these 187 minutes while this is ongoing. And Trump could have called them off, could have stopped this use of force. Knowing his own vice president was at risk, he does nothing. Um, And that seems like pretty good circumstantial evidence that he intended for the violence and the force to continue. It was a fascinating, fascinating day. My biggest fear is that not everyone in the country listened to it. It actually had a pretty good audience. I think it was so far the most powerful day. I was really moved by some of Greg Jacobs' testimony about what was happening when they were in a secure location. And particularly, I think, as you noted, the power of the juxtaposition of the tweets with what was happening was, I almost was crying watching it, truly. I I was really, really moved. And I think that they are starting to show how each of these things is part of an overall scheme to undo the election, to have a coup, to stay in power with full knowledge that he lost the election, that there was no fraud that was involved in the vote. And I think that's really really important. And um, when you're talking about the violence, I think that 
there's, you know, a lot of my followers are starting to say, what about charging him with attempted murder or, you know, aiding and abetting attempts to murder? Because you have the Proud Boys saying, you know, we're going to get you, we're going to kill you, hang Mike Pence, they were going after Nancy Pelosi. So I think a lot is being developed and it's not the viewership during Watergate, which lasted, the hearings were 51 days and 80% or 85% of all households watched at least a part of it and watched not one hour, but like 30 hours. So there's a big difference in the viewership now, but this was a bigger audience than they have had for uh, any of the sports events, Barbara, that you love or <laughs> the Emmy Awards that I love. And or the I, knitting events that I love, all that <laughs> televised knitting. <laughs> I haven't seen that, Joyce, and I'm not sure what their, their volume is. But, a girl and can hope. I know. I, I thought they did a really, really good job. How do you think the committee is doing just generally, both of you? I think they're doing an amazing job. I think it's it's um, it's been really compelling. Um, and I think they're, they're taking advantage of the fact that they don't have to follow the rules of evidence. They don't have to have witnesses on for, you know, six hours at a time just to get three good nuggets of statements out of them. I think they are cognizant that not everybody will watch live, but that many people will watch the clips. So, for example... When they had Judge Ludig on, who, forgive me, I thought listening to him was like listening to paint dry. Um, he speaks so ponderously, so slowly, so self-importantly that I really had a hard time listening to him. But the clips are fantastic because if you listen just to the clips, he talked about a constitutional crisis. He talked about a revolution. He talked about he would throw himself in the road before he let yes. that truck run over the country. So he said some really great things. And I think that um, the committee understands that all you need to do is extract those things and people will, you know, it'll be reported about and people will see that on clips. So even those who aren't watching live, they're using um, segments of deposition testimony very well. You know, we've, we've seen Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner uh, and others who might be otherwise hostile witnesses if we heard all of their testimony, but their admissions are so damning. Um, and I think the use of all of these Republican insiders makes what they say incredibly credible. Because it looked like when, when you saw um, uh, Bill Stepien, the um, campaign manager testify, you could hear the pain in his voice talking about what happened on this campaign he was trying to, to win. And I think that really goes a long way. They are taking no joy in sharing this horrible thing that happened, but they are telling the truth about what happened because they feel an obligation to do that. Even when Bill Stepien, um, or sorry, it was Greg Jacob, the lawyer you mentioned, yes. Jill, who, who, who tells a very good story. He is a compelling witness. He describes all of these horrible things that happened. But in the course of it, he refers to Democrat lawyers, uh, you know, it's like, oh, wait a minute. He is a Republican, isn't he? You know, <laughs> you know how they just are physically incapable of using the proper name of the party, the Democratic Party, and they Drives are everybody nuts. Democrat Party. But but when he said Gosh. it, he said it very matter of factly. It wasn't trying to troll anybody. It just came out. You were reminded, like, oh yeah, these guys are Republicans. So I think. Um, for all of those reasons, they're really doing an excellent job to not only share the information, but to do it in a persuasive way. I really worried that they didn't have a narrator like John Dean, but I think they have substituted both the investigative counsel who have sort of had video testimony um, and by people like Greg Jacob, who have become the narrators of a story. And the questioner has become a narrator of the story. And I thought that they've all, all of the people who've 
done, you know, taken charge of a particular hearing um, from the committee have done a very, very good job. I am concerned still about the timing of how they're scheduling and canceling and postponing and what that creates and changing the time of things. Does that bother anybody? And do you have any theories on why the Department of Justice Day was postponed? They've, they've given well, two different reasons, neither of which it, makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, it does bother me just from the optics. The committee's presentation has been so immaculate. And so to see this little bit of back and forth and inconsistent storytelling sort of makes you wonder what's going on. But, but look, part of this is just the legislative sausage making that's happening. We're at that point um, before Congress goes out of session for the July 4 recess where a lot of stuff has to get done. There are bills that are being marked up. So I think some of this comes from, from that and, and maybe in the long run won't be much of a concern. Well, Steve Bannon has a July trial date on contempt of Congress charges, something for us to look forward to discussing on the podcast. But this week, he was back in the news as he tried to get those charges dismissed before trial. Jill, what are the contours of his argument, and how did the court end up ruling? I guess I sort of gave the answer away since I (laughs) said he had a trial date, but what's going on here? That's the answer. His arguments were not accepted. They were pretty much uh, dismissed out of hand and a trial date was set. And, and I think we'll get to Navarro and his trial date as well. We can handle that separately. But all of his arguments, and he's argued everything from the committee has no jurisdiction and you can't ever subpoena somebody and you can't indict them for obstruction if they have executive privilege. And the court said, you weren't even a, an employee of the president at the time you did this, so you couldn't possibly have any privilege. And you can only exert the privilege if you show up and claim the privilege, and if the proper person claims it. And we have a situation here where the real person who can claim it, President Biden, has not claimed it. He has waived it. And so it doesn't get to the question of could a former president Wait, uh, claim it because this president hasn't even really directly claimed it for him. So it was pretty much just dismissed and a trial date was set. And he has responded with, well, I'm just going to subpoena everybody who has anything to do with this on the other side, and they're going to all be sorry. And I yeah. bet they won't be. So that's utterly fascinating. Barb, what do you make of that? Bannon's lawyer does say he's going to subpoena all the members of the committee. Do you think we're going to hear them testify at his trial? Um, I'm going to guess no, with, and my degree of certainty is 100%. <laughs> what a bunch of nonsense. Oh, uh, this is like the same crap where they say, uh, witnesses on. we're, we're going to investigate Hunter Biden. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just this, I'm going to make it so uncomfortable for you that you're going to back down. There's no relevance whatsoever. The committee has served a subpoena he has refused it. They don't have to explain their reasoning. In fact, I think it would be an improper uh, separation of powers issue for them to inquire. As long as they have any legitimate legislative purpose, and many courts have already ruled that they do in investigating the January 6th attacks, then they're permitted to call any witness that they believe 
can provide relevant information about the topic. And Steve Bannon is absolutely one of them. So um, it's it's a uh, you know, it's, it's puffery. It's a bullying tactic. It probably sounds good on Fox News or Steve Bannon's podcast, but uh, it has zero chance of succeeding. Yeah, you're dead on the money. I mean, nerdy trial rules, right, for federal prosecutors, really in civil cases, too. Evidence has to be relevant to a fact that's in question before it can be admitted at trial. And of course, we, we leave discretion in the hands of federal district court judges, the trial judges, to decide what's relevant. Maybe they'll entertain one witness, but I'm sort of of the Barb McQuaid school here. I don't think we'll hear from a single one of these people. Their testimony isn't relevant. And Bannon is just the blowhard that he's always been in this regard. Um, and, and speaking of folks who um, speak out of school, Barb, Peter Navarro, who um, I think just about everyone at this point has seen him explaining the so-called Green Bay sweep on television, only to have Ari Melber, who's, you know, <laughs> rarely taken aback, right? Ari says, well, wait a second, you're describing a coup, um, which was absolutely what Navarro was doing. You know, it, it was painful to watch him out speaking in public while a decision was being made about whether to indict him. He was his own worst enemy. He appeared at arraignment yesterday, finally had a couple of lawyers in tow. In fact, he's got he's got two lawyers and he'll need every inch of that. What's the latest with the case? And do you think we'll see a trial for him too? Uh, I do, unless he ultimately enters a guilty plea and, and cooperates. You know, these guys who talk the toughest are often the ones who sing the loudest. You know, think of Michael Cohen. Um, but, uh, you know, he's charged with, as, as is Steve Bannon, contempt of Congress for refusing to comply with a congressional subpoena. And so that is the case he has been prosecuted for. And what I think is most interesting about him in the more recent developments that you asked about is um, the audacity. You know, we, we, we talk about white privilege, and I think sometimes, um, you know, that, that term gets thrown around. We don't know exactly what it means. But boy, Peter Navarro, he first complained about the fact that he was arrested. Why, they put me in handcuffs and leg shackles and put me in a jail cell. Well, yeah, that's what happens when you get arrested, Mr. Navarro, on a plane, you know? So um, as he was heading I mean, out nobody of town, even kicked in his door, right? They didn't embarrass he, him in he, front of his neighbors. It he was said they knocked arrest. loudly. He complained about how loud the knock was. <laughs> yeah, God forbid that, uh, you know, they, they want to be heard. So he was, uh, he's complained about that already. And then now... Uh, speaking of audacity, he says, um, you know, you know, they want to set the trial for uh, November. And he says, you know, I can't make it in November because I'm going to be doing a book tour on my book where I describe all of these nefarious things that I've been involved in. So I'm going to have to have a trial schedule yeah, judge in the spring because <laughs> um, I've got to do a lot of touring to promote my book to make sure I can maximize my profits. And so, um, you know, the judge has said, no, they're going to go forward in the fall, but we don't know yet. I mean, they're, they're still going to have to wrestle around with these ideas, but can you imagine the nerve of saying, yeah, I'm not going to be able to make that trial date, Judge, because i got to go promote my book tour. Even someone Unbelievable. Is, even an author as, <laughs> as famous as Jill Winebanks wouldn't try that, I don't I, know. <laughs> that was, gave me the greatest laugh I have had in many a week. I thought that was the funniest thing I'd read. I mean, talk about the irony of, I want to talk about what you won't, yeah. I won't talk to you about. I want to talk to strangers to make money. 
but I'm not talking to you, which is, of course, the same thing that we complained about with people not coming forward in a timely fashion who could have saved the day either through the 25th Amendment or for a thousand different ways, who are now talking and we're applauding them and thank heavens that they are talking now, but they should have been talking mm-hmm. yep. a long time ago. Yep. Good point. Well, this upcoming week marks the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Title IX, of course, is part of the Education Amendments of 1972. It was enacted on June 23rd, 1972, so I guess that's this coming Thursday. And it prohibited sex discrimination in education. And so it threw open the doors to opportunities for women and girls. And Jill, let me ask you, you were already a lawyer in 1972. What did it mean at the time to have a new law banning discrimination in education? And what was the landscape like before that law was enacted? Well, let's talk about the landscape before because what it meant to me was nothing. It had no impact on my life. I didn't have children and I wasn't in school. And so there was nothing that, you know, had any impact on me. Um, It is something, of course, that I applauded as bringing some equality, but I have seen the benefits of it for my uh, my goddaughter and her daughter, and that's a wonderful thing. But the landscape back then was that girls, as we were called, did not participate in sports or not in any way, and you would see, you know, a baseball game was three innings, and that was it. It, it just, it wasn't something that was done, and it wasn't paid for by the school. Girls were discouraged. When you went for a job, things were listed as help wanted male, help wanted female. And there were quotas on how many women could be admitted to the class. My class at Columbia was 5% female, and that was a quota. Mm. And, and that was all legitimate. So it was, it was and is a major thing. And I have to say, I don't think I, I always focused on Title IX as opening sports to women. But when you really get into it, it really is much broader in the equality that it offers. Um, And I know we're going to get to one of the parts of that in terms of how it can be used for beyond just participating in sports. Yeah, I, you know, I've read that uh, in 1972, it was commonplace for teachers to be fired for becoming pregnant. Absolutely. That certain jobs were closed to women, Um, you know, no math and science for women. Girls need not apply for either to be a student or a teacher in certain programs. Home ec was where girls went. Home ec. And the boys went into woodworking and (laughs) other things where they could actually make money. Um, That was how it was. Absolutely. I I learned how to pluck my eyebrows in home ec. I mean, it was like (laughs) such a waste of time in my life. I learned how to do do a modeling day. It was humiliating. I did not want to be a model. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I learned how to sew. And that's actually, I mean, I can sew that's on buttons and halves. That was actually a good skill. So I'm, I'm glad I got that. But um, and, it's, and that's fine as long as you have the choices about that, right? That, of course. Uh, you know, kids today, if they want to take a sewing class, that's wonderful. Boys can take yeah. it too. And if girls are interested in wood shop or whatever else they're interested in or math or science or debate, they can or do that if, too. Or if boys want to be nurses. Absolutely. Um, if you remember, I ran Chicago's Career and Technical Education Program. And it was very hard to recruit the boys to nursing 
even though it is a great job that pays well and you can always get a job. Their nurses are in high demand, but they thought of it as, that's not for me, that's for girls. girls." And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, opening it up both ways is what's important about all of the laws that we have in, in terms of Title IX and everything else surrounding it. Oh, yeah, that's such an interesting point, Jill, because, you know, that's what Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. She opened the doors to equality yes. by pointing out the ways men were discriminated against, you know, very shrewdly assessing that those arguments would appeal to the male judges that she was arguing to. And then once she threw out these laws on the basis of sex discrimination, of course, they benefited women um, as much as they benefited men. Well, you know, back in the 70s, it really was the issue that in order to be accepted, you had a sort of almost had to make that argument. You couldn't make an argument for your own benefit. You had to yeah. make an argument that was the other way. And it, it was somewhat effective, but you would always say, well, I don't choose to be a homemaker, but I am so glad that you have the right to do that. And I should have the right to choose to be a lawyer. Yeah. And it, you know, it was very careful because there was as much opposition from women at that time as there was from men. Uh, the biggest opponents of the Equal Rights Amendment, of course, were women who were afraid that they would lose the right to alimony and that they would have to share a bathroom. I, I mean, ridiculous things. But that's those were the kinds of things that really existed back then. Yeah, I've watched Mrs. America on yes. Hulu. I learned all about Phyllis Schlafly. Yes. And the big argument was your girls are going to get drafted. Um, well, you know what? It, we, equal citizenship means equal responsibility. So I'm it works it. really well in Israel. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Except I just learned the most horrible thing. My grand goddaughter is uh, in Israel uh, on a kibbutz, and there are jobs that are male only and female only. And she wanted to work in the farm gardens. It's male only. Mm. So Mm -hmm. that was stunning to me. That was stunning. I thought they were so much ahead of us, but they are not. We all have work to do all over the world, don't we? Well, Joyce, I want to ask you about a different aspect of Title IX. Um, And as Jill mentioned, I think many of us often think of Title IX as opening the door to women's sports. It was all aspects of education, but one of them is uh, sports in education. And we still see some schools and universities struggle with Title IX compliance. I recall that when I was in high school in the 1980s, Our girls' sports teams were often relegated to the lesser facilities, you know, the worst practice time than the boys. Boys got to go right after school. We had to go home and then come back, you know, at 6 o'clock for practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And women had to fight and file lawsuits to obtain that compliance. And a lot of that work was done. Um, Still, you know, not resolved, but a lot of progress has been made. And now we're seeing a push for transgender rights in sports with arguments that that discriminates against girls in sports. What does that debate look like? Yeah, so this notion that including transgender athletes in sports is somehow problematic or disadvantages girls is just nothing other than a a real form of discrimination um, and harassment dressed up in language. Interesting, given the discussion you and Jill have just had, sort of an anti-trans argument made in a way that they think people will like and that they will accept. You know, your girls will never have the mm-hmm. chance to win again if there are transgender <laughs> women included in their sport. Um, and it's it's bunk. 
including trans people, really benefits everybody. For one thing, it backs down on gender policing and this notion of are you feminine enough? You know, are, are you too masculine? Which is something that really needs to be undone. It's taken to an extreme with this new Ohio law that permits yeah. uh, anyone to demand that someone who's participating in a sport, your child, be forced to undress and have their genitals um, checked to ensure that they are participating in the right team. It's absolutely uh, appalling and, and shouldn't happen. And this notion that girls can't compete with uh, trans girls reinforces this myth that women are weak and need to be protected, which really isn't true. In fact, the science doesn't bear out this notion that trans athletes have any advantage. They vary in their skills, just like cisgender athletes. And the experts say that genetic makeup is not predictive of your success um, at all. In fact, I'll tell you all an interesting story. I was at my 40th college reunion up in Maine, and there was a 5K race. And one of the women in my class, so a woman in her 60s, came in second overall in the 5K race. Every wow. age group, you know, men and women and everybody who's running – and Dot comes in second. She does lose to a man, but she beats a lot of men. Um, and, and so that just tells you how much of a myth this is. So look, um, trans people are being excluded because of fear. And we've seen this before, right? We've seen times when people were excluded from activities because of religion or race or national origin or gender. And we need to move past this. We need to move past these sort of myths that are designed to raise prejudice and fear and just be more inclusive in this area. Everybody benefits. Yeah. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Jill, you flagged an interesting article um, also that, that kind of lines up with this theme of discrimination based on stereotypes of women and girls. It was about a school dress code, uh, you know, that perpetuates these idea of gender roles for girls as what was it? A, as fragile vessels in need of protection. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I think you've said it all in that <laughs> description. You hardly <laughs> need to go finger. any further. But <laughs> this was the most blatantly, obviously targeted law or code of conduct I've ever seen. Boys had to wear pants and girls had to wear skirts so that the boys would treat the girls chivalrously and they would treat them the way girls should be treated as delicate vessels. I mean, it's revolting and repulsive. And the girls finally brought a lawsuit and said, we want to be comfortable at school. We want to be able to run and jump and do and be like everybody else. And I personally think that ultimately, I, this is going to clearly go above the courts that they're in now, and that the answer is they're going to have to eliminate dress codes that discriminate between men and women. You can't have men required to wear pants and girls required to wear skirts. So that's what that case was all about. And I look forward to following it up through the courts to possibly the Supreme Court in this era. Yeah, you know, um, I'm all for fighting for the right to, for girls to wear pants. I feel seen. So I yeah. just remember I had to wear a skirt in Alaska <laughs> to my first trial because I couldn't wear pants in court. So I'm really hot on this issue. You know, we couldn't wear pants in court when I started out in Birmingham as a lawyer. In Washington, no problem. Down here, we had judges who simply wouldn't permit it right. and would send you home if you committed that grotesque sin of wearing a pantsuit. Yeah. It was 1987. 
You know, I've always had this sense when, even when I was a kid in school, you know, I, I didn't want to wear a dress because I wanted to play at recess. And reading the arguments in this case, I, I really do feel seen. Um, this idea that girls need to be t- treated as fragile vessels and should not be participating in these activities was the whole reason behind it. I knew it. I knew it all along. So I, I really applaud these girls for bringing this lawsuit. You know, Barb, I have never thought of you as a fragile vessel. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Joyce. I think that's a compliment. <laughs> it is a compliment. Before we wrap on Title IX, um, I, uh, I really just want to say that there are, and acknowledge some of the heroes of Title IX. You know, there were certainly some famous women leading the movement in the 1970s, like Gloria Steinem and Billie Jean King. I mean, really heroes of mine for the work they did to demand equal access and equal pay for women um, who did really important work. But there are also a lot of women, I think, um, who uh, were unknown in those fights. And we will never know their names, but I want to thank them because um, all of us enjoyed these opportunities that used to be closed to women, whether it was debate team or math and science classes or sports teams. I will tell you, I believe that my participation on sports teams in school helped me develop many qualities like you know discipline and teamwork and the ability to have thick skin when you have to deal with adversity or disappointment. All of those things um, I think we got because of Title IX. And so in particular, I want to call out another hero of mine, Marissa Pollack, who was a pioneer at the University of Michigan. She was in the first class of women athletes to play varsity sports at Michigan. And I know she had to fight many battles with the administration for equality. And in fact, only in the past few years did those first women who were varsity athletes at Michigan receive their varsity letter jackets. Because at the time, the very famous athletic director and football coach opposed giving them to women because they said it would dilute the value of a varsity letter that was given to male athletes. Can you imagine that? Um, And so, of course, those victories go beyond sports. It goes to schools, to education, to teaching opportunities. And without education, you know, where are we? So so all the women out there who have fought those battles, the famous and the the not-so-famous who just fought in the trenches, thank you for kicking down those doors so that the rest of us could walk through them. And, you know, if you have a a Title IX story or of struggle or accomplishment, I'd love to hear about it. So to our listeners, if you have anything, please share it with us on the Twitters. We, uh, we always check there and we'd love to hear about them. Well, Barb, it's down to just the two of us. Jill has gone off to the Watergate anniversary, but I thought we'd take a couple of listener questions if you've got time. Yeah, it's like a battle of attrition, Joyce. I'll be here all day. If you leave, <laughs> if you leave then I'm just going to mock all three of you, so you better stick around. <laughs> no more moo oink for you. Okay, look, we love answering your questions. We had a great batch this week to choose from. So if you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlockpolitikon.com or tweet using hashtag SistersInLaw. If we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Barb, I think the first question, why don't don't we both take a stab at it? This one comes from Karen. She says, juries are required to base their decisions solely on the evidence presented. Are Supreme Court justices similarly restricted or can they arbitrarily insert new arguments or facts? 
Yeah, this is such a good question. And the answer is no, they are stuck with the record before them. And it's so important, you know, Joyce, I know you were an appellate lawyer. My husband has been as well. And they talk about how important it is. They're constantly reminding those of us who have been trial lawyers that you got to get it in the record. If it's not in the record, it doesn't exist. So that includes arguments that the lawyers make. So um, it, it, it is they are limited to the same evidence that was presented to a jury. If they find out after the fact that there's something new, they are not allowed to consider it. Our second question comes from Susie. She asks, could Trump and his campaign be prosecuted for fundraising off the election lies they knew not to be true? Isn't this fraud? And of course, Susie is uh, referring to what's now called the big ripoff, this notion that after Trump knew that there was no fraud that influenced his loss to Joe Biden in the election, he continued to fundraise off of it, raised almost $250 million Instead of using that money for pro-election work, it somehow or another mysteriously made its way into his coifers or those of his friends and people close to him. What do you think, Barb, fraud? Yeah, for sure. This is a classic fraud. You know, typically it gets charged as wire fraud or mail fraud in the federal statutes. And that just means you had a scheme to defraud and you either used the mail for mail fraud or a wire, which means, you know, an email got sent out or a website was posted or you caused a credit card transaction to be made by sending a solicitation. But I think it's fraudulent on two bases. Number one, the big lie. Uh, you know, if there's no there there, as Mark Meadows said, then Telling people to, to send money because the election was stolen is itself based on a fraud. But even if you can't prove that, the easier one is the idea that they said it was going to be used for something called the Election Defense Fund, which was a non-existent fund. And instead, they used the money for other purposes. They sent one to a Mark Meadows political action committee, and they sent some of it to the Trump hotels. So <laughs> it reminds me of the, uh, the Steve Bannon, we build the wall fraud. Remember that one? Where exactly. Exactly. So I think, and you know, it's, it would be pretty easy to prove. So, uh, you know, all the convoluted stuff about who knew what in the fraud, at the end of the day, wouldn't it be ironic? It's kind of like Al Capone being prosecuted for tax violations that you get, for, you get Trump on one of these, uh, you know, uh, snake oil huckster sales jobs. You know, I'm, I'm so entranced by this development and this argument, and I just have to note a moment of personal pride because one of my assistant United States attorneys, Amanda Wick, was the committee staffer. She's no longer in AUSA. She works for committee staff. She's something of a cyber and a financial fraud expert. And so it was Amanda who made the presentation of the big ripoff, and I thought oh, she did a great did. job. I mean, it's a compelling case. Go, Amanda. Yes. Um, Barb, do you want to ask me a question so yeah. you don't feel like I'm constantly asking you? I do. I have many questions for you, Joyce. Uh, <laughs> this one, though, comes from I'm Stephanie. I'm not going to talk about shaving. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> this one comes from Stephanie, who asks, if anyone got a pocket pardon, does that mean they can't be prosecuted? What evidence is there that one actually occurred? Tell us about pocket pardons, Joyce. This is such a great question. This is this myth that cropped up at the end of the Trump administration, that Trump was secretly giving people pardons to protect them from prosecution. And of course, a pardon is an official government process. It has to be documented and written down and the paperwork has to be processed for it to be effective. Um, and so, and it also has to happen while Trump is president, right? He doesn't have the ability today from Mar-a-Lago to say, I pardon thee, you know? Um, and so unless pardons were on the official pardon lists and were processed formally, 
with very, very rare exceptions that would not apply here that might um, happen in the national security space. And, and even then, I'm not clear that that's a possibility. But I think you can take it to the bank that if people's names weren't on the pardon list, they did not get a pardon from the former president. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Wine-Banks, Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Please support our sponsors this week, Honey, Athena Club, Policy Genius, Moink, and HelloFresh. You can find their links in the show notes for extra savings along with our survey. Please support our sponsors. They really help us make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, Follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sistersinlaw. Joyce, it's just you and me. I'm, I, I'm already missing Jill and I'm sure missing Kim. We haven't had her in two weeks. And, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate her insights. I appreciate her thoughts and I appreciate her thoughtfulness. I really do rely um, on Kim's insights a lot. I hope she's not going to hear us saying nice things about her. But in addition to the gorgeous, colorful background she sits in front of, which always cheers me up, you know, her perspective as a journalist, as a woman of color, as a civil lawyer, it adds a lot. And Kim often makes me rethink my opinions and, and reconsider whether I'm right, which I'm always really grateful for. We need her to come back. Yeah, same here. And, um, you know, she's a Detroit gal, so she's got that going for her. That's same right. Thing. I so always we, forget we, that. We should, and Flintstones fan, so. Yeah, the dabba do. Flintstones meet the Flintstones.